Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on page 374, um, partway through chapter 36. Um, please bear with me, sometimes I trip over my words. But let's enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III. The chapter heading is Among the Branches. Enjoy. A dedication of a church building at Pisgah, some miles east or northeast of Mondaman, Iowa, was scheduled to follow closely this reunion, and I was invited to attend and assist in the ceremonies. I was met in Mondaman by Brother W. H. Stewart of that place, and there filled an engagement or two. The dedication at Pisgah occurred on Sunday, October 6th, the small building erected through the devoted efforts of the small group of saints in the locality being duly consecrated to the Lord. The weather just previous had been very stormy and we waded into the little settlement through some pretty deep waters. This was indeed a wet reception, though we did not allow it to wet blanket the services and they passed off very satisfactory. Brother Joseph Lane was one of the very was one of the active saints there, which was also the home of the Van Etons, daughter and son in law of Brother Charles Derry. The dedication occurred in the forenoon, and that evening I preached again in Mondamin, leaving on Monday morning for Council Bluffs. There I was the overnight guest of Brother Calvin A. Beebe. Taking train next day at Hastings, Iowa, I was joined by Brother Thomas A. Huggis, then General Superintendent of the Sunday School Association, and in his company proceeded towards our destination. We paused overnight at Peria, Illinois, and reaching Wirt, Indiana the following day. Brother Huggis was an excellent singer. There were not many pass passengers on the train after leaving Indianapolis and after our lunch we got out our hymnals and amused ourselves by singing some of our church songs. At work we were met by young M. R. Scott Jr. who was then presiding over the little branch and by him taken to his house. They were a very hospitable family, their home being crowded as for that matter, was every house in the vicinity in which our people dwelt. As a class, they were not very well off. There had been lots of dry weather and the crops were poor. Indeed, the whole country thereabout looked ragged and broken, so that I did not wonder that they had difficulty in wrestling or resting a comfortable living from the soil. There was considerable sickness among them, and before I left, I thought I discovered one of the causes therefore. I had been going pretty steadily through the summer and autumn seasons, and found I was very early worn out, which might have accounted for a part of my susceptibility to conditions. When Sunday came, I bore the burden of speaking to the people. Rain had set in, and it was drip, drip all day, since it was getting along in the fall in the weather. Sorry, let me start that again. Since it was getting along in the fall, the weather was taking on some coolness. Whether or not these facts were the cause, I do not know, but I think I never tried to address an audience 
which was so utterly adverse to fresh air. Three times that day they packed that small building like sardines, to use a homely phrase, and in the evening my sermon was delivered through an atmosphere so heavy and oppressive I could with difficulty raise my voice to a speaking pitch. Even the lights burned dimly and with feeble vitality, yet these country people sat apparently oblivious to the condition, many of them with their overcoats on, the women in shawls and wraps. I did not wonder that there was sickness among them. I managed somehow to get through that service without breaking down, but I know that I never welcomed fresh air with more gratitude to God than I did on that night. The Sunday school convention and conference in the little church passed off very successfully in spite of the above experience, and people seemed pleased and encouraged by our efforts. In presided, in presiding over the conference, I was associated with Brother George A. Smith and the younger brother Scott I have mentioned, both of whom were pleasant and cordial towards me. I met quite a number of saints, among them one W.C. Marshall and a large number of Scots and their relatives, most of whom were nearly or remotely related to our well-known elders Columbus and S.W. Leonard Scott and of Will W. Scott, now of St. Joseph, Missouri. When invited to this conference, I had been told my expenses would be paid. In going, they had amounted to $13 and a half, but no one asked me about them. The only provision I heard of as to expenses was that at one of the services a collection was taken up, the amount of which, quite small and wholly inadequately, inadequate, was handed to me on the following day by a brother Scott. That was all I ever received or heard from as to the expenses incurred. I have said but little about the financial part of my travelling expenses, but I may add here that the failure of this little group to recompense me for the expenses incurred in filling their request for labour was not an isolated case. It has happened in other localities. However, it is but fair for me to add that, taken all in all, in the course of my many years wandering about in the discharge of my duties as a churchman, I have much more frequently received amounts in excess of my expenses than below them, and the times when I have failed to receive any at all have occurred but very rarely. Some memories come to mind in connection with this visit to Wirt, Indiana, which I regret to record. Sometime in the earlier part of the year, the wife of Brother Marshall, a most excellent woman, had died, and Brother Bar Marshall had taken another companion, a woman of a different faith. I was invited to take dinner with him on Sunday, but on going to his house, I was accorded a very cool reception by his wife. He had two daughters, fine-looking girls, but the wife was, as if impressed, as it impressed me, an unsuitable companion for him. His faith had already begun to waver, and not long after my visit, she had taken him bodily out of the church. I regret also to recall that while there I discovered that the faith of brother M. R. Scott Jr. was not of the strongest. For some time there had been controversy between him and his father, who I imagined somewhat severe in his treatment of the young man. The son himself, however, was not strong in the faith, as he had not, as I believed then and still do, received the sealing testimony of the Spirit. 
It happened that not long after both he and brother Marshall left us and accepted the philosophy taught by the Christian church. How many members they took with them, I have never inquired. Next heading, concerning the Sabbath. There were several brethren in this locality engaged in raising strawberries for market. I think the names of two of them were Kaplinga and Sappenfield. A strong controversy had developed as to the propriety of picking berries on Sunday, the settlement of which they had agreed to leave to my decision. From the circumstances as they developed, I believed at the time that this matter had been one of the reasons why I had been invited to attend this conference, and so strongly urged to do so by Elder George A. Smith. While his home was near Clear Lake, Brother Smith had been labouring in this Indiana district. He had given his opinion in this discussion, holding out strongly for the doctrinal faith on the question. The conversationalists preferred, however, to leave the matter to my judgment. The parties involved met me at the house of one of their in one of their number, where I listened to the story. I gave my decision, which ran about like this. The country in which they lived was of such a character that the raising of small fruit was a desirable and profitable industry. In their season, such fruit should, if possible, be picked on the days it ripened and gotten onto the market in sound condition, as was the duty of honest producers. Therefore, in my opinion, in circum if circumstances were such that the fruit required picking on Sunday, it was their duty to so gather it, to preserve it in proper condition, and to be in harmony with the revelation that we had received, and which were, we were distinctly told to leave nothing to go to waste. In delivering this opinion, I suggested, however, that for absolute assurance that they were keeping entirely within the law, it would be preferable for them to engage in a business that would not require such labour on the Sabbath day, the day intended for rest and the recuperation of the body from the wear and tear toil of the six days of labour. Wisdom indicated a course of obedience to the command of God in order that we need not suffer from continual labour performed without proper attention being given to the required and designated hours of recuperation. As an illustration in point, I told them a story from my own experience. During a summer of work with my brother on a farm we had purchased and intended to use a threshing machine, the machine had come from the factory and we had it all set up on Saturday, ready to begin work on Monday morning. We had been cutting the 40 acres of grain during the week but had failed to get all of it stacked by Saturday night. To obviate what we conceived to be a difficulty, I suggested on Sunday that we don our working clothes and stack the rest of that grain which was cut. This we did, much to the, astonish much to the astonishment of our neighbours, among whom we had always had a reputation for morality and a strict observance of the Sabbath day. Though at the time we were not engaged in church work, it being prior to 1860, we finished the work of stacking the grain and went to our rest that night, rather securely trusting that in the morning we could proceed without threshing. During the night a storm came up and its results reminded us of the trustfulness of Robert Burns' couplet, The best laid plans of mice and men gang after flea a glee. 
I told my brethren to judge of our astonishment and dismay when next morning we viewed the damage done by the storm and found that the very portion of that grain which we had so laboriously put in place on Sunday afternoon had been blown off, completely and cleanly lifted from the stack as though done by mischievous hands and lay in a tumbled and water-soaked mass nearby. It would have been far better for us had we left it in its original thinly scattered position on the ground. Thus we were prevented from doing the threshing we contemplated, being obliged to scatter our grain again and wait for it to dry. I assured my Indiana friends that my brother and I then and there decided that thereafter we should be very careful to finish our work on Saturday night or leave it until Monday morning, for we had found it very unprofitable indeed to do any unnecessary work on the Sabbath. What I had said about their berry crop and the story I told them about my own experience in Sunday labour gave them the desired light, as I suppose, and the object of my going among them had to that extent been achieved. My decision and suggestions were received in good part, and they were apparently successful in stopping some of the cavalling which had been going on. Next heading, the family reunited. Brother Hogus and I left for Chicago on October 14th. There I was to meet my wife, who was returning with her two children from their rather long visit to her former home, proud as any mother naturally would be to have shown her fine boys to the many home folks. I stayed at a hotel that night and in the morning went to the station only to learn that her train was delayed for a number of hours. Repairing to the home of Sister Maggie Warlick, to which we had been invited, I found Brother Sheehy. Sister Warlick was the daughter of Elder Duffy of Kukuk. She had married a successful businessman of Chicago, a German. She extended a warm welcome to us and later Brother Sheehy accompanied me to the station once more. The belated train brought my wife and children, the latter sound asleep and the former much worn with the strain of long travel and the care of the lively boys. With the assistance of Brother Sheehy, however, babes, tired women and heavily loaded baggage were soon in Sister Warlick's comfortable home where, though it was nearly midnight, we were royally welcomed by the hospitable husband and wife. Next day, my old-time friend John S. Patterson assisted us to our train headed for home. We was then in hearty old age, but trudged sturdily along, carrying, as he insisted upon doing, the heaviest of the satchels to the station. We arrived home safely and happily on the 17th of October, finding loved ones well and glad to see us once more. The account of the year's activities may be finished by briefly stating that on December 13th I left for Kuwani where two days later I assisted to dedicate the fine little building we had formerly opened a few years before. This was the third time I had helped the Kuwani saints to dedicate a meeting house for throughout the years this valiant little group had been very persistent and alert in improving their situation, environment and facilities. Whenever opportunity permitted, they still occupy the little brick church thus dedicated late in 1901. Next heading, Missouri Rallies. Several members of the church in Kansas City had agreed upon making an evangelical 
efforts before the city prior to the General Conference of 1902 under the management of Reverend Wallace N. Robinson, W.R. Pickering and others, a prominent hall had been secured and the rally arranged according to careful plans. Invited to be one of the speakers, I left home on March 7th of that year and in the evening was met by brother J. Arthur Gillen and sister Sally Spangler, both members of the Pickering office force, and by then them taken to the Pickering home on Waldrand Avenue, I think. It was one of the most unique houses it had been my fortune to see. Some man with plenty of money and large imagination had built a stone mansion, one of the most solidly constructed I ever saw, beginning with the retaining wall at the street, clear back to the stable in the rear. Every detail and appointment had been constructed, apparently, of the most expensive building material obtainable. Whether the fortunes of the man fouled or his interest in the building died out, I cannot say, but Brother Pickering was able to rent the place out at a very nominable price. I enjoyed the fine hospitality I found there or found here, for he was a man with whom one could converse on any live topic of the day, and his wife, a model housekeeper, loved to entertain and was quite given to surrounding her table with interesting guests. Not to be idle, I visited Armstrong and attended Saturday sessions of a conference there, at which I spoke briefly. Brother E.L. Kelly, speaking at night, it was a sturdy band of saints and a pleasant one. I made a number of acquaintances, had dinner with a family named Berg, supped with George Hicklin and went back to Pickering's for the night. The rally began Sunday morning at the Acad Academy of Music. Splendid singing was provided. The joint choirs of Kansas City and Independence branches giving loyal and efficient service along that line. It had been thought that by consistent advertising, the attention of the city dwellers could be attracted and an interest aroused, which would result in a large attendance at the meetings. The members did their parts well, the advertising was adequately accomplished, the music and preaching excellent, but the interest aroused was very meagre, the attendance small and the movement proved less than a success. Brother Frederick C. Warnke had for some time been doing missionary work in Butler and Rich Hill, Missouri, where there was a small branch under Brother Frank Sharrock. It was discovered that quite a good building, put up and used by another denomination, had been abandoned for want of a congregation and was offered for sale. Just following this rally in Kansas City, I accompanied Brother Warnke to Rich Hill, the object of our visit being to assist the local authorities to decide whether or not it would be wise to buy this church. The saints were used in the home of Brother Sharrock as a meeting house, and upon this occasion it was well filled with guests, rather taxing its limited, though hospitable, accommodations. With a number of brethren, we went to look at the building under consideration, taking note of its condition, location and probable usefulness to us. It was a fair size for the number of saints there, well appointed inside, and since it was of, offered for something like $250, in my, if my memory is right, we concluded that the saints would be justified in buying it if they could do so without becoming involved in debt. I spoke to the group there on Sunday at their place of assembly, quite a number gathering to hear me. 
some from regions round about. Most of them were miners, and since the mines were good and there was no strike or wage war on at the time, the workers were receiving an excellent recompense for their labours. The next day I started for home, which place I reached on Tuesday, March 18th. Next heading, The Burden Shared. The conference held at Lamoni in 1902 was one of the most important as far as its issues were concerned that had been held by the reorganised church. The first presidency had been in a fragmentary state since the disability of David H. Smith occurred. For some years prior to this conference, it had consisted of the first president, assisted by patriarch Alexander H. Smith and Bishop Edmund L. Kelly, both by permission of revelation. It had become evident to many that the situation was critical and earnest prayers were offered throughout the church asking for an adjustment that would relieve the handicap of conditions then existing. In answer to this need, a revelation came in due time and relieving those who had been acting with the president of that extra burden, my son, Elder Frederick M. Smith and Elder Richard C. Evans of the Quorum of Twelve were chosen and installed as councillors to the President. Thus, for the first time since the disability of my brother David, there was a full quorum of the Presidency equipped to serve collectively or individually according to the law of the Church. The general anxiety of the Church in this situation, which had seemed acute, had been shared by me, but it was not within my power alone to remedy it. Without divine help and instruction, I could not presume to release a point or otherwise reconstruct the quorum. Thus it is with renewed gratitude to God that even now on this day, August the 18th, 1914, in dictating these memoirs, I acknowledge the kind and overshadowing providence which came to our aid and express again the sense of joy I experienced when I was thus relieved from the extreme responsibility which had so long rested upon me while the quorum was incomplete. Throughout the years from 1860, the quorums of 12 and 70 had also been fragmentary, and it was apparent that it was time in the wisdom of God that they also should be filled. While these quorums, when partly filled, might act in a joint capacity under the rule of the majority, it was a question of whether or not, in case of emergency, they would be, as independent units, be entitled to the supreme respect which under the law should attach to them and make their decisions effective to the greatest degree in the councils of the church. At, as the church expanded, the members more numerous and its influence occupying a wider scope of action, it became clear that emergencies were more likely to occur. This made it made it desirable or necessary that the leading quorums should be full in order to ensure the greatest protection to the liberties and efficiency of the church as a whole. This much-to-be-desired condition was secured at this conference, and for the first time the leading quorums standing with full membership could act as independent quorums within the law, and their findings and decisions be stamped with that degree of authority intended by the revelations on organisation. Readers acquainted with the history of the church and with a knowledge of the various vicissitudes through which it had passed can easily realise 
What a wonderful relief this more perfect organisation of the Quorums brought to all of us. My labours and responsibilities as president were to be shared, my former associates being free to carry forward their more specific work in other integral parts of the church. Next heading, the Quorum of Twelve Strengthened. The calling of Apostle R.C. Evans to the First Presidency and Apostles John H. Lake, Edmund C. Briggs, Joseph R. Lambert and James Caffall to the Order of Evangelists. Let me say that again. To the Order of Evangelists. New, men, new members in the Quorum of Twelve were needed in order to give it solidarity. Accordingly, Brethren Olsis W. Green, Francis M. Sheehy, Frederick A. Smith, John W. Rushton and Cornelius A. Butterworth were called to be ordained apostles, thus filling the quorum and creating that equality among the three quorums, the First Presidency, the Twelve and the Seventy, required by the organic law of the Church. This welcome change placed the body in a position to function more perfectly, and should there occur any encroachment upon the doctrines of the church through false beliefs on the part of its leading authorities, it provided the possible check intended in the law, thus dividing the responsibility and placing the well-being, equanimity, and integrity of the organisation upon a stronger and firmer basis than it had occupied before. It may be added also that the increase in the number of patriarchs through this revelation gave rise ultimately to the organisation of the evangelical order under its presiding patriarch, Alexander H. Smith. Brother Butterworth was at that time filling a mission in Australia and was reported to be in failing health. His call to the Quorum of Twelve was received by some with considerable astonishment, but the conference accepted it in good faith and I was instructed to communicate by cable with my brother Alexander, then in Australia. I was authorising him to perform the ordinance which would set Brother Butterworth apart for this office. This he did, and incongruous as it may appear to be, under the influence of the destiny which shapes our ends, it followed that the idea of failing health for Brother Butterworth, or its interference with his apostolic labour, was dispelled. He took up his work earnestly and up to the present date, 1914, has been able to prosecute his mission with all diligence as an honoured member of the quorum, apparently in fair or excellent health. One of the members taken from the Twelve, Brother James Caffell, declined ordination to the patriarchal order and not long after the period of this conference was laid away, to await the arbitrament of time by which all will eventually be tried. These contrasting incidents appear to show quite strikingly the surprising power of him who holds in his hands the destinies of men and of nations. It is well for me to introduce here an excerpt from the pen of my brother Alexander, which shows still more clearly the spirit and genius under which the church has been protected and guided in its official actions as an organic body. The following is from Autumn Leaves and gives essentially the same facts as he communicated to me by letter of April the 22nd, 1902. While in Melbourne, 
I assisted in organising a branch and helped to get the work in good running order. I was just getting ready to leave for Sydney when I received a cablegram from America, from the president of the church. It had been sent to Sydney, where Brother Gomer Wells received it, and knowing its importance, forwarded it to me at Melbourne. Twelve hours later, I should have been en route for Sydney. As I write, I have the cablegram before me. It is brief but full of meaning. It is as follows. Alexander ordained Cornelius Butterworth Apostle, Quorum of Twelve, Joseph. Now that my, now that my readers may understand my position, it will be remembered that when I left America on this mission, the Quorum of Twelve was full and I had had no way of knowing what had been done to cause a vacancy in the Quorum or make necessary such an action. Hence it was with consternation almost that I read the order. Thoughts and arguments ran through my mind. Who of the quorum is dead? I thought of our aged brethren Briggs, Caffle, Lake, and the brethren Lambert and Luff in ill health, and I wondered. Then it came to me that I had received intimation of the spirit and otherwise that some of these aged men would be retired and young men called to supply their places. I came to the conclusion that this is what had happened, and then I argued, would this ordination be right to all intents and purposes so far as right? Oh, sorry, to all intents and purposes so far as human judgment could decide. Brother Butterworth was a dying man. What would the world say and what would be the result to the church if I ordained that dying man and immediately or soon after passed away, never recovering from his present sickness? What confidence could the church have in the inspiration of President Smith again if such a result followed? My anxiety was great. I really suffered as I never did before and I am assured the adversary took advantage of the circumstances to make things look very gloomy indeed. Before retiring to rest that night, I made the matter a subject of special prayer and then laid down to rest, but not to sleep. I rolled and tossed, it seemed, for hours until all at once I felt a calm, peaceful influence come over me. The room seemed lighter and a still quiet voice said to me, It is your duty to ordain that man and leave the results in the hands of the Lord. I recognised the voice, I had heard it before, Immediately I went to sleep and rested peacefully until morning. I arose, went to the station, brought my ticket and returned to Somerville, where my coming greatly surprised Brother Butterworth, who supposed I was well on my way to Sydney. Brother David McIntosh accompanied me, and when I told Brother Cornelius why I had returned, I think I never saw so surprised a man. I told him to take time to think the matter over, for I would stay all night. He did think it over, but not all night. He sat with his elbow on the arm of his chair, his head bowed, resting upon his hand, as if in that silent prayer. Then he looked up with moisture in his eyes and said, I have decided, I told the Lord, when I entered the ministry, I would serve him wherever he called, and I believe that he has now called me to this high and holy calling. I dare not refuse. I do not know why he has called one so weak as I, but I trust him and shall leave the rest, the result in his hands, striving to do my duty in all things. I ordained, and there was the Spirit's presence in power to confirm what I had done.
Next heading, a conference family. The readers may be interested in a glimpse of my conference family this year, thereby perhaps understanding one of the reasons for calling my home Liberty Hall. There was Apostle Evans who came on March 19th to attend the pre-conference meetings of his quorum, Sister Evans and Sister Baines, Elders Joseph Vaughan and John Teeters, my daughter and son-in-law, Emma and Alexander McCallum and their son William, my wife's parents, brother and sister Alexander Clark of Waldemar, Ontario, and doctor and sister O.H. Riggs and daughter Marie of Independence. This roster does not include those transients who, who partook of our hospitality by special invitation at the different meals. Throughout the sessions, our table was always full. At that, this list is not in excess of the crowds we have all. Let me start that again. At that, this list is not in excess of the crowds we have had all through the years, beginning as far back as old days in Plano, when beds for conference guests in our home were often placed all over the floors, even in the halls. Speaking of our usually crowded table at Liberty Hall, an incident comes to mind, which once occurred there. Sitting around the board, besides Mr Jacobs, my carpenter friend, and myself were a number of guests, including Dr Levy Anthony, his brother RJ Anthony, a Dr A.N. Baker from Des Moines, my brother Alexander, and two or three others. We were enjoying a good breakfast, or of beefsteak, graham cakes, butter and syrup. After we had had our plates replenished a time or two, a question was raised relative to the effects of salt used as a condiment, whether beneficial or not. The answer of one doctor did not satisfy the other one, and quite a lively discussion ensued. I paid but little attention to the chatter until an appeal was made to Alexander for his opinion. In his blunt manner, he blurted out, Whatever may be the beneficial qualities of salt as a condiment, in certain kinds of food, it certainly doesn't improve the flavour of coffee, as I look at it. I noticed a broad smile upon the face of my friend Jacobs, which rather illuminated me, and mistrusting that something was wrong, I examined the contents of the sugar bowl and discovered that the cook had filled it with table salt instead of sugar, and our friends at table had sweetened their coffee with it. It created a burst of merriment in which the cook joined. She did not confess she had purposely substituted the salt for the sugar, but since it was so close to April Fool's Day, I had me doubts. This incident must have occurred some years prior to this conference of 1902, of which I have been writing for that year. Alexander was in Australia. Dr. Anthony and Dr. Baker were dead, as also was my friend Jacobs, who had passed away in 1896. Such is the mixture of a medley of events in the kaleidoscope of memories in a long life, and I pass it. Next heading, more dedications. On Sunday, June 15th, I assisted in the dedication of a church for the branch at Cleveland Ayara, presided over by Brother John R. Evans, in this, I was in association with Brethren Robert M. Elvin, Joseph C. Clapp and the local members, principally Welshmen, who had once formed part of the branch at Lucas. A shift in the coal mining business 
had made a new location necessary or desirable, and the brethren, taking advantage of the opportunity, had followed the industry. No, no remarkable event connected with this occasion is marked in memory, it being quite similar to many others at which I had been present. I was the guest of Brother Evan B. Morgan during my stay. There had been a successful movement in the southern part of Michigan through which region Brother J.J. J. Cornish had preached very consistently. One result was that I left home in company with Brother Heman C. Smith to assist in a dedication. At Milwaukee, we were met by W.W. W. White, a cousin of Heman's, who visited with us and provided us a meal while waiting for time to take the steamer across the lake to Ludington, Michigan, once a famous lumber town. We sailed at 8.30 in the evening and for the first time I had the privilege of riding upon the waters of Lake Michigan, which I found was very pleasant, though the trip was uneventful. We reached Ludington on the eastern shore of the lake early in the morning on June the 21st and free soil of our objective point about 8 o'clock. A very interesting branch had been established at free soil and a neat chapel erected which I was privileged to dedicate in a sermon next day. The opening prayer was made by Brother Cornish and the dedicatory prayer by Heman, my first experience with him in such service. This was a new locality for me and I enjoyed seeing it and also meeting the band of saints. Many of them, as was often the case when I visited faraway members, entrusted monies to me for subscriptions to church publications. I here met one... C.G. Lewis from Boyne City, with whom I had had correspondence. He was a son-in-law of an Irishman named Wingfield Watson, a strong advocate of the claims of James J. Strang. I was glad to meet him and talk with him about some phases of the work of Strang. His wife was nominally a strangeite as well, but I apprehended that her membership was largely due to her reluctance to hurt the feelings of her father. Our stay at Free Soil was short, for on Monday we left in company with Brother Cornish for Reed City, where he resided, with his wife and two or three boys. It was a privilege to be a guest in their home, where I had a good rest. Two of our people were assisting in keeping a hotel there, and we were very well treated during our brief stay among the saints of Reed City. Tuesday we accompanied Brother J. H. Peters to his home in Coleman. I was suffering a good deal from neuralgia, though managed to preach to a good-sized audience that evening. On Wednesday we went to Bay City, where I became the guest of Brother William Dalka, speaking in the saints' church that night to a small audience, Heman occupied the same pulpit the following evening. It was here I met J.A. Carpenter and wife, brethren E.S. White, Isaac Leviatt, uh, George Clark, William Dunlop and others. Late in the week, a little crowd of saints went to Shabona, pronounced there Shabona, where quite a group had been gathered through the activity of Brother Cornish. Brother Thomas Brown met us on the road at and conveyed some 13 of us to Shabona. Heman and I were located at Brother John B. Prockers, 
Brother Cornish had won the confidence of these people and had, uh, and had encouraged and counselled them excellently with the result that here was another building to dedicate, erected by devoted and enthusiastic members. It was a weekend of activity. Friday evening, there was a Sunday school convention session in charge of Brother O.J. Horn. Saturday opened with prayer services, followed by business session, lunch at the church, much social intercourse, and a sermon by myself in the evening to a crowded house. The dedication service was on Sunday with Brother William Davis in charge. Brother J.H. Grant offering the dedicatory prayer. A sermon in the afternoon by Brother Cornish was sandwiched in between mine of the morning and evening. My visit here has one particular incidence, or instance in memory. A sister in the church had requested Cornish to preach her funeral sermon. After her death, under the ban of strong objection to her church proclivities by some of her relatives, he was refused the privilege of performing the rites requested by the sister. However, taking advantage of the occasion of this district conference and the large assembly, even though against the decided wishes of some who had opposed the sister in her lifetime, he fulfilled his promise and preached a sermon which he dedicated it to the memory of the departed sister, thus satisfying her relatives who were favourable to her membership as well as his own conscience. From these services I reached home on July 2nd, but not long after, in company with Bishop E. L. Kelly, departed for a conference at Springfield, Missouri. There we were met by Brother J. C. Christensen. Brother Kelly preached that evening and Monday evening while I occupied twice on Sunday. In the forenoon, in association with Brethren Isaac N. White in charge, E. L. Kelly, who offered dedicatory prayer, and Henry Sparlin, who offered invocation. I assisted in dedicating a church, pre uh, preaching the sermon. There was a fine attendance and a good spirit. Nothing of remarkable note occurred there, though I became acquainted with numbers of new faces, names, members and workers, among them this brother Sparling and brother A.M. Baker. I stayed at the home of brother Sparling and discovered he was a splendid conversationalist, full of interesting reminiscence and sparkling anecdotes. He had an excellent helpmate and assistant in his wife. There were others who extended hospitality to me, among them Brethren D.W. Thomas, Merritt, Jimler, Quinby, Johnson, Bishop, Thompson, Wretch and others. There were the usual attending activities several children blessed, people administered to, and some baptised. Brother W.R. Pickering, who had formerly been a resident there, attended this conference, and in going north towards home, after it closed, he was our travelling companion. We obtained our lunch on the train, and in late afternoon I reached Independence, where I found my usual resting place at my daughter's home in Englewood. Visiting among my many friends in Independence and with the Pickering family in Kansas City, speaking on Sunday, July 20th, at an outdoor meeting in Bud Park and presiding over some council meetings, filled an interim most busily, though nothing of particular note occurs to my memory connected with that stay in Independence. 
When I returned to my home the evening of the 21st, I confessed to feeling somewhat worn and weary from my travels and labours, and it seemed good to reach that haven. Next heading with Councillor Evans. I did not leave home again for any trips of note until fall, when according to agreement with my new associates, brother R.C. Evans and I went to the Dow City reunion in September. I made my usual stop off in Council Bluffs in passing and was distressed to find brother B.B. quite ill. My brother Alexander and I administered to him and fell, felt well rewarded at the comfort he received through the ordinance. Reaching Dell City, I was taken to the house of Brother Alfred Jackson, where I have had left my tent and equipment the year before, and busied myself with preparations for the assembly next day. The tents were erected in the village square, an enclosed park. The village authorities having, according to their promise, provided water privileges and other necessary adjuncts to make the meeting a success. I selected a suitable location, pitched my tent and arranged it comfortably. The next day, the reunion was organised with Joseph Smith, R.C. Evans, Frederick A. Smith and J.M. Baker, Presidents. The success of this reunion was much enhanced by the presence of Brother Evans, who had not heretofore become acquainted with the West and our many members there. He came among them with quite a reputation as a preacher and his having been raised to an office in the First Presidency gave him additional prestige. As an associate, we found him an agreeable and willing co-worker. He occupied a cot in my tent, where we both slept, taking our meals as we might choose among the campers, ever generous with invitations or at the general dining room provided by the committee. I remember that once we ate at a hotel at the invitation of Brother John Hall, an employee of the North Western Railroad. He was a locomotive engineer on one of the fast trains and a fine large man, weighing about £250. He was hoping to be able to successfully drive his engine until past the designated age limit when he would be given different employment. His wife was a fine-looking, pleasant-faced woman and they very much attached to each other and they were very much attached to each other. They had attended these reunions for many years, but this was the first time I had made their acquaintance, though generally I was quite at home with all the Western people who attended. The saints were always ready to receive not only us, who were officials, but others of the brethren as well, such as Brother Hawley, John Pitt, Sidney Pitt, and others. Altogether, our stay was made very attractive and jolly. It was a new experience to Brother Evans. At first he seemed a bit reticent about accepting all this open-handed, hearty Western hospitality, but he soon adapted himself, made many friends and was well received everywhere. The day after the reunion adjourned, we struck tent. And next day, in company with Brother Evans, I visited Omaha, where we were guests of Brother Ed Ranney. Brother Evans preached in Omaha and I in Council Bluffs. Later in the week, we went to Mondamin, where I spoke Friday night. Brother Evans going on to Moorhead to hold services. At Mondamin, Brother David Gamet was my host. Saturday at Pisgah, Brother Evans and I again joined forces and were lodged in the home of the hospitable Van Eaton's. On Sunday, September the 21st, a church was dedicated at this latter place. 
brother H. N. Hanson in charge. R. C. Opening opens with prayer. Brother Charles Derry offered the dedicatory prayer, and I preached. I again occupied in the evening while Brother Evans went over to Mondamin to hold services there. Thus, we made good use of time and opportunity on this post-reunion trip. Leaving Brother Hanson and Brother Derry to continue the week's services at Pisgah, we left on Monday for Council Bluffs, where I spoke at night. Proceeding thence to St. Joseph, Brother Evans occupied there in the evening and then went on to Kansas City whilst I detoured to Lamoni. After spending a week at home, I rejoined my associate in Independence and attended the wedding ceremony, which on October the 1st united Brother Charles Williamson and Sister Annie Hildreth. The rite was performed by Brother Evans, an old-time acquaintance of the family, at the house of Mr. Fred Dunn, whose wife Jane was sister to the bride. Their mother and sister Margaret were also present. The Hildreths were from Chatham, Ontario, and have been mentioned herein before. At the time, I was not fully acquainted with the statutes of the state of Missouri and unconsciously permitted Evans to commit a breach of the law, as I afterwards discovered when I became a citizen of independence. The law provides that those who perform marriage ceremonies in that state must be citizens of the United States, which Brother Evans was not, notwithstanding his officiating in this instance, was a breach of that statute and an e illegality viewed in that light. There was no illegality in the marriage itself. The only result that could have happened had information about it reached the authorities would have been that Brother Evans could have been charged with a misdemeanour and thus become possibly subject to fine or imprisonment or both. As I jokingly told Brother Evans when telling him about it afterwards, even if he had been imprisoned in a Missouri jail for this unlawful act, it would have been no worse than what had happened to a certain prophet in the past. No complaint about this lapse has ever been filed, however, and the incident has passed, as have many others of similar character, with no harm accruing so far as real events in human life are concerned. The next day, Brother Evans and I went to St. Louis, where Brother S.A. Burgess and Sister Etta Hitchcock met us at the station and took us to the home of Brother J.E. Dawson for supper. I spoke that evening in their new church, though it was a dull, rainy, dismal night. The next evening, at the close of another rainy day, Brother Evans held forth on the subject of the Book of Mormon. There was a reception for us at Brother Dawson's the same evening, and we enjoyed the social contacts it afforded. It was October 4th when we went via the Missouri, Kansas and Texas Railway, the KT, to Xenia, where Brother Isaac N. White met us. There we became guests of a sister... Gorgia and her nephew, at the time not a member of the church. This nephew took us by wagon to Zenith Camp grounds in the region known as Brush Creek. This was the locality where, after his ordination in 1842, Elder Thomas P. Green had been sent by the Prophet Joseph Smith with instructions to preach the gospel, raise up a branch and stay there until ordered by the church to move on. This old-time church group had prevailed and continued and was finally accepted by the reorganisation in a body, as I have mentioned elsewhere. 
Here, Elder I.A. Morris and a corps of assistants were officiating here, indeed an active group. We came to attend a conference or reunion which was organised the day we arrived. Brother I.N. White and Brother Morris in charge. They were assisted by Brother Davis and Brother William Bozarth as clerks. Among the brethren here were two who had been guests in my home the April before. Extra notices of this meeting had been given out and arrangements made for a large attendance. The hopes of these good workers were indeed realised for people came from all the country side around. We met many saints and their friends, some very excellent and some otherwise. I recall one interesting Scotchman, James Ferguson, who had some of the peculiarities and all the natural firmness of his race. It was a satisfaction to me on this occasion to help counsel him and some of the authorities of the district in the matter of controversy which had developed between them for, as I learned later, the difficulties were agreeably settled. There were two sisters, one a young school teacher, the other a more mature spinster, who had come from the north. They were strong intellectual women fighting the battle of faith alone among their neighbours and apparently happy in the conflict. They were always in good spirits and thoroughly enjoyed the meetings of the reunion. Brother I.A. Morris was one of the old-time stock of church members, in fact one of the charter members of that branch, the integrity of which formed a valuable link in the threefold cord of evidence furnished by prophetic utterances in regard to the reorganisation of the church. R.C. and I slept at the home of Brother Morris, where we were permitted the privileges of visiting at will his splendid orchard and partaking of its bounties. We greatly enjoyed the relaxation afforded by our country surroundings. Most of our meals were taken at the large table on the meeting grounds, though I often lunched with a young couple who had a tent nearby and were most generous in urging their hospitality upon me. Both Brother Evans and I accepted such invitations as were extended, however. We continued in session several days, the preaching being done by Brother Evans, Brother Walters and myself, though I think upon one occasion one James Paxton spoke. Leaving the camp on Wednesday, October 8th, by team, Brother Evans and I ate a farewell meal at the house of Sister Gorgia in Xenia and returned to St. Louis, there again to become the house guests of Brother John Dawson. We attended evening prayer service that night and next day as guests of brother and sister S.R. Burgess and family had a long drive about the city, which included a visit to Shaw's Garden, Tower Grove and the grounds of the World's Fair slated to be held in 1904. R.C. spoke on the Book of Mormon that night after which we parted, he to take the midnight train east towards his home in Canada and I to return to Brother Dawson's. My itinerary called for a stop on the road home at El Dorado Springs in Cedar County. The town has its name from a series of springs in the vicinity. We reached the place on Saturday morning, October the 11th, where a conference and reunion was organised in charge of Brethren James Muller, F.C. Keck and R.C. Walters. Here, as usual, I became acquainted with new parties, lunched at Brother Charles Snelling's store, had my evening meal at the Snodgrass home and lodged at that night at Brother Johnson's. I preached in the courthouse that evening. The service was largely attended with two young 
Utah elders, Walker and Hughes, among the listeners. On Sunday morning, the dedication services were held. It being my privilege to preach the sermon and offer the dedicatory prayer. There was a splendid spirit present. At noon, I was the guest of Brother Click, Glick and family at the church and had supper and lodging at the Park Hotel. A Mr Dowd proprietor. Here I was well treated, Mrs Dowd being a daughter of Harrison Dykeman, a marshal serving in Plano while I was resident there. With him and his family I had formed a friendly acquaintance, which I have mentioned in these memoirs. I was by their invitation I became a it was by their invitation I became a guest at the hotel. As I learned from others, she had a good deal to tell about me, but it was not unfriendly. I here met an interesting captain, Music. Next morning, I took an early stroll and drank some waters from the spring. They were of excellent taste, but of their medicinal qualities I knew but little and can say nothing. In returning, I took the short line via Nevada to Independence, where I spent a few days. One day, I shopped with brother W.R. Pickering in Kansas City when he brought a new suit, overcoat and other necessities for me. A not unusual expression of the kind thoughtfulness of this brother and his wife, for which I am glad to give him what credit this acknowledgement here may constitute. Other saints have also at various times remembered the situation in which, like all our ministry, I have been placed in regard to temporal needs and have found pleasure in supplying as they could. I've reached home on October the 16th. I'm going to leave that there. Thank you for listening.